0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke, chapter 3. As we continue in our study through Luke's Gospel, we'll be uh, reading the second uh, of a series of two messages, uh, two passages dealing with the ministry of John the Baptist. You may remember, if you were with us last week, that I mentioned uh, two of the things that we see from John the Baptist. One is that he prepares people through repentance, and that he points repentant people to Jesus. Today we're going to see, as we read verses 15 through 20, that pointing of John the Baptist. We're going to read verses 15 through 20. Our focus really today uh, in our study will be in verses 15 through 18. Uh, But John uh, today showing up in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, and you can find that reading beginning on page 858 of our ESVs. Now, before we go to God's Word, let us go again uh, before Him in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is true and just and living and active. We thank You that by Your Word and through Your Spirit You lay us open. You lay us bare and expose the sin hiding in our hearts that You may deal with it. We thank You for Christ, the One who has come to baptize His people in spirit And in fire. And O Lord, we pray that you would do a work today to renew our hearts and to refine us as your people, that you would be present among us as you have promised to be when we gather together. O Lord, that you would draw our eyes to Christ to see him and to love him more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. In uh, just a few short years of pastoral ministry, I have noticed a refrain, mostly coming from the words, the books written by faithful ministers who have gone before me, many of them uh, long gone already, some of them still living, but faithful men who have been in the ministry long who have this refrain that they want to teach younger ministers like myself, and the refrain goes something like this, beware the evils of a successful ministry. Now, a successful ministry, at least I'm told, can be a dangerous thing for a young minister. And that is because it can make a young minister think way more highly of himself than he ought. And in thinking more highly of himself than he ought, he can forget what is truly important. And he can forget to point to Jesus Christ, the head and the founder, the king and the prophet and the priest of his people. Well, I don't know what mentors John had in his earthly life. I don't know which faithful pastor reminded him to keep primary things primary, but it is, uh, it is evident from what we see here that John never forgot what was most important. We see it happening at the height of his ministry, while the multitudes are coming out to him, while he had the crowds on the edge of their seat while everyone was wondering and watching and trying to discern if perhaps this man of power out in the wilderness somewhere might be the Messiah that everyone was waiting for. And John doesn't get carried away with their enthusiasm. He says simply, no, but there is someone else coming, someone much greater, somebody much superior to me. And the strap of his sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Now look, every good pastor, John has has chosen his illustration very carefully. Untying the sandal of someone else was actually one of the most humiliating tasks you could be asked to do in the ancient world. It was so humiliating that if you were a Jew and you had a fellow Jew as a slave, you could not compel him to untie your sandal. You could ask him to do a whole host of other things for you, and in fact, if you had a Gentile as a slave, you could demand him to take off your shoes, but it was too demeaning, it was too low and humiliating to ask a fellow Jew, it was inhuman almost, to ask them to unstrap your sandal. And the rabbis had a saying, every service which a slave performs for his master must a disciple perform for his teacher except the loosing of the sandal strap. You see, John is calculated here. He has explicitly chosen the most reprehensible task he can think of, and he's saying that when Christ comes, when the Messiah actually shows up, John would count it the greatest blessing of his entire life just to render that service to him of unstrapping his sandal, that thing that nobody else would dare to do for a fellow Jew. John would love to do for the one who is coming. And it's clear that John has not forgotten what is most important. He's not forgotten the superiority of Christ. In fact, that's the legacy of John. We remember him as a preacher of repentance. We remember him as the one standing in the wilderness clothed in camel's hair and with a belt of of leather around his waist. We remember his strange diet of locusts and honey. But what he ought to be remembered for is his pointing to Jesus. And saying, here is the one who is to come. Look to him, don't look to me. I must decrease and he must increase and he is the one who is greater and when he shows up he will prove himself to be greater. Qualitatively greater, exponentially greater, ontologically greater, greater than John and greater than any pastor and greater than any prophet who has ever been known uh, to walk the streets or walk the earth. What we see here, and what John wants us to see, is the superiority of Christ. That is our theme for today. And would that you would see it. That Christ is greater than anyone else who has ever come and ever ministered to his people. He is the one who is superior, vastly more superior than anyone else, any prophet, any priest, any king that anyone else has ever known. Now, in John's mind, uh, Jesus' superiority has to do with two things, and these are going to be our two points today. That Jesus is the one who comes with a superior baptism, and Jesus is the one who renders a superior judgment. He's the one who comes with a superior baptism, and he's the one who renders a superior judgment. Judgment. Now, the first comparison, really the primary comparison that John makes between his ministry and the ministry of the Messiah is this idea of a baptism. When Christ comes, He will not just baptize with water, but He will be the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, that is a big deal, especially for John. John, of course, was known for baptism in the the ancient world before the time of Christ. If someone were to speak of baptism, you would immediately think, oh, I associate baptism with John. This is his bread and butter. It's his calling card. It's what he's known by. This is how Luke summarizes his ministry back in verse 3. John went into the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so John and baptism are almost inseparable in our minds, and they were inseparable in the minds of the crowds who came out to see him. And I bet if John had appeared in our day, he would have been approached by a, a whole team of patent lawyers. We've tried to convince him to register the trademark for this new thing that he's doing. And that way, when the multitudes come out to you, John, you can send them away and everyone will have a little certificate of authenticity and they can go home and they can tell their friends, you know, I was baptized by the actual John in the actual Jordan. And if you think I'm exaggerating, just talk to any of your friends who have been on a tour of the Holy Land. And ask them about the rebaptismal services that happen all up and down the banks of the Jordan because the tour guides who put those trips together have somehow realized that there are lots of weak minded Western Christians who think that one water baptism is better than another water baptism because of where it happens, or because it was administered by some Messianic Jew and not some Scotch Irish American Presbyterian. Because they think that it's better or it's different if you've been dunked or sprinkled or poured or whatever. And we convince ourselves that all of these externals that we think are oh so important. Now, of course, baptism is important. Perhaps I've put a finger on a raw nerve there. Maybe we need to think and, uh, and consider what baptism means and what water baptism symbolizes and, and who administers it. All these things are very important, but... John is drawing attention to the very cornerstone of his ministry, this water baptism. And he's saying that when the Messiah comes, his baptism will be infinitely superior. Explicitly because it does not deal only with externals. The baptism of Christ when he comes will not just be a washing of the body with water, but the baptism of Christ will penetrate to the soul of a person. It will get beneath the surface. It will deal with sin from the inside out. It's a cleansing that neither John nor any of the prophets nor any pastor since, by their own power, has been able to affect. And John is telling us that he is vastly superior, vastly superior in his baptism. Now, you may know, of course, that John's ministry was not all that significantly different from the ministry of any other prophet who came before him. Christ puts him as uh, the greatest of the prophets, but but not essentially different. John was out there calling people to repentance, calling them to turn, calling them to, to bear good fruit. But isn't that what all of God's prophets had been doing for centuries? It's essentially the same ministry that Isaiah had. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. He writes, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. That sounds a lot like John. It sounds a lot like Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. It sounds a lot like John. It sounds a lot like Micah and Joel and Jonah and Amos. It sounds a lot like every other prophet that the Lord has sent to his people calling them to be circumcised of heart and pure of hand, calling them to turn and repent and walk faithfully with the Lord. And John is out there. He's out there in the spirit of Elijah and with the power of a prophet, and he is preaching, and his preaching is persuasive, and it is powerful and full of conviction. But John is unable by his own strength to take that message and to take that baptism and get any further than the ears and the skin of the people who come out to him. But he is telling us there is one who is coming, who is able to get to the heart. The Christ who is coming would cleanse not just the deeds that soil our hands, but he would wash pure the filth that hides in the secret recesses of human hearts. And he's telling us that when Christ comes, and he has come, he would come with a superior baptism because he would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He would deal with the sin of his people from the inside out. Now, he tells us about this superior baptism, that it's it's a baptism with the Holy Spirit, and that means, essentially, that it is a baptism of renewal. That was the hope of all the prophets. That was the missing link that could take their message and make it more than auditory entertainment. The Spirit of God poured out into the hearts of men to write His law on their hearts, to give them new obedience and true repentance. This is what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 27. Ezekiel wrote, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You hear that? In the language of cleansing and and washing and sprinkling and, and baptism You hear that new obedience and that repentance from the heart. You you hear that message of the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost. The Spirit who gives life because the flesh is of no help, Jesus said. The Spirit who comes to illuminate the minds of men and women to make them understand and believe and rejoice in the message of Christ and Him crucified. The Spirit who comes who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, who also raises us from the grave of our sin by working a living faith in our dead hearts. The Holy Spirit, who Himself is able to produce good fruit of righteousness in the barren soil of humanity. And John is telling us that Jesus is able. By pouring out His Spirit upon His people, Jesus is able to do what no powerful sermon by itself, has ever yet been able to do. And so while the world, the Christian world, is abuzz with a concern over when and how and, and by whom you were sprinkled or dunked or however it happened, while everyone else is, is excited about these external things, the real question is whether you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we're not going to go into a, a longer discussion about that because some Christian traditions take that and they separate it unjustifiably from the moment of conversion. That there's some sort of second baptism that must happen. But no, the scriptures are clear. Titus chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. The real question is whether we have been saved. He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul writes to the Corinthians, if any man have not the Spirit, he is none of his. The question is not whether it has shown up in some extra manifestation of signs and wonders working in your spirit and and through your ministry in the church over and above somebody else that you can point to and say, oh, wonderful, I've got the baptism of the Spirit. The question is, have you been renewed? Have you been regenerated to look upon Christ in faith? Have you been cleansed and renewed by the Holy Spirit? That's the baptism that Jesus brings, better than anyone else could ever give to his people. But he also tells us that Jesus' baptism is a baptism of fire. And that means that it's a baptism of refining. Now, in in Luke chapter 3, when John is talking about uh, this baptism of spirit and fire, most likely uh, he is alluding to a a prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We're not going to turn there right now. I'd encourage you maybe to go there and look later today on your Sabbath reading. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, explains the coming of the Lord in three stages. It says first that the Lord is going to send His messenger before Him to prepare the way, that was John, of course. It says, thirdly, last, that that God will come in judgment upon the earth, but between those two, he says that the Lord himself will suddenly appear at the temple, the God whom you've been waiting for, but he will come as a refiner's fire and as fuller's soap, and he will cleanse every dross and every impurity from his people. He will make them clean and acceptable in his sight. He will refine them with heat and affliction, perhaps. And this is a symbol that we know, isn't it? This is a biblical image that we're familiar with. And probably somewhere along your Christian life, some uh, pastor has preached a a sermon on God's refining work. And they've told you about uh, the way that in the ancient world, if you were a metal worker and you were doing metal casting, the first thing you had to do was refine the metal, the gold, and the silver And so you put it over a fire and you turn up the heat until the impurities burn off. And the way that the refiner knew when the metal was ready was when it was so pure that he could look at it and he could see the reflection of his face. And it's this beautiful picture of God's refining work in our lives. That God in refining his people is making us more and more like Christ. It is this comforting reminder of what he's doing and working, making us shine like precious gold except the reality is that this refining process is much messier than most of us are prepared for. I was talking just this week with somebody about uh, my rural Pennsylvania high school. And the fact that in high school, in rural Pennsylvania, you're able to take wonderful classes, interesting classes like metal shop. And I learned there to do some sheet metal work and I did a little bit of welding and I ran some machines and I also did some aluminum casting. And if your idea of refining molten metal is this comforting, uh, peaceful sort of endeavor, let me encourage you just to try it once or twice. In our small shop, what it meant is that you gathered 10 pounds of whatever scraps you happen to have, leftover over projects, soda cans, any aluminum you can get your hands on and you put it all into a crucible and you put it into this gas-powered furnace and then you suit yourself head to toe in leather coveralls and you stand next to this roaring fire for an hour just sweating. And little by little, you see the scraps start to succumb to the heat and they start to droop and they start to melt together. And some of the paint, some of the grease that's in there, it all gets vaporized and vaporized, and you know, the, the flames turn a funny color, and it's fun for a little while. But but really what happens as the heat works on this metal is that it takes all of the hidden dirt that's inside and it just makes it float on the top. That's all it does. It doesn't burn it off, it doesn't get rid of it, it just makes it more visible. And what the refiner has to do is he goes in and he has to do a little bit of skimming off the top. And so you take this long-handled strainer that looks like a big pasta spoon and you, you swipe the top and you dump it in a barrel and you turn the heat back up and little by little, piece by piece, bit by bit, yeah, it gets pure, but it's a long process of seeing what's actually in there. And that, friends, is a much better picture of what refining looks like in our lives than this peaceful sort of idea that many of us have that God adds a little bit of flame and then he looks and he sees his face. No. This refining work very often shows us, as John Newton said in his hymn, the hidden evils of our hearts. What God is doing is he's refining us through the gift of affliction that he uses is that he's showing us what is hidden deep inside of our hearts, those sins that we didn't even realize we were dealing with, and you've seen it, haven't you? You've seen that person just snap and lose it, fly off the handle over some little thing, and then they've got to come to you later and they say, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. I'm usually such a patient person. You've seen it in your own life. You've seen yourself stepping over boundaries of sin that you promised yourself you would never cross. You certainly would never cross it again. Certainly not this time. You know what it is to come to the sudden realization that something that you've longed for and fantasized about and strived to attain is actually something that you never should have had in the first place. And all of these things happen, even among baptized, Holy Spirit-baptized true believers. They say, why would the Lord do it this way? Why would He show us these evils in our heart in such stark ways? Well, it happens because the Lord is refining His people, baptizing us by fire. He's bringing up the dross to the surface where we can see it and where others can see it and where He can skim it off. And so John can stand out there in the wilderness, and he can raise his voice, and he can preach until he is red in the face. But unless the Lord is sending the fire of conviction and continued repentance and sanctification into the hearts of his people, it's all just so much noise. Folks, the same is true for us. You can come week after week, and you can listen, and you can be delighted by wonderful words. I hope that you are, but I want you to know that my prayer for you, week after week, when we come, every time I step into this pulpit, my prayer is not just that you would be excited about what I have to tell you today, but that the Lord would be working in your heart, sometimes to comfort, sometimes to afflict, sometimes to unsettle us, so that he would show us what's really in there. What a blessing that so often we find ourselves unsettled in life and we're praying and we're working through it and we're wondering, Lord, when will things get easier? And He says, They're not going to get easier because I'm refining you. This is what it's about. I'm working in your life. My prayer is that the Lord would continue to refine you, that when He shows you those hidden evils, you would. You would see them as they are. You would be reminded of the ugliness of your sin, that you would be reminded of the gracious, wonderful love of Christ, that while we were yet sinners, He should come and die for a wretch such as you and for me. My prayer is that you would know this baptism. That You would know that the Lord is able to renew us and to refine us. He's the one who baptizes his people with Holy Spirit and with fire. And he cleanses his children better than any priest, better than any prophet, better than any pastor ever could. John wants us to know about the superiority of Jesus' baptism. But he also wants us to know about the superiority of Jesus' judgment. You notice in verse 17, John takes up this theme of Jesus' sifting work. He comes as the one who divides humanity, the one who's preparing both the wheat and the chaff for that great and terrible day of the Lord, when all those who are his, the wheat, are gathered together to him, and all those who are not his will be burned with unquenchable fire. And our narrator steps back in in verse 18. He moves without blinking an eye. Luke steps in and says, as John was saying all of these things, what he's doing is he's preaching good news. Now, good news is one word. It's evangelion. It's gospel. John is preaching the gospel. The good news, not just of Holy Spirit baptism, but the good news of unquenchable fires of hell. The good news of the eternal damnation of the unjust. Good news about unquenchable fire and burning judgment. And folks, we are tempted to overlook this. Because we have somehow convinced ourselves that good news is always pleasant news. And this is decidedly unpleasant. It is unsettling. And it reminds us of the ugliness and the wickedness of our own sin... And it makes us to tremble for our loved ones who have not closed with Christ. But this is good news. This judgment is good and true and righteous. And even if it seems unpleasant, you need to know how good this judgment is. And you need to know how superior, vastly superior, unmeasurably superior Jesus' judgment is to any other tribunal or court or man or or judge you will ever stand before or could imagine standing before. And Luke wants us to know how good Jesus' judgment is and how superior it is. There are lots of things that we could say, but let me suggest a few things that show us the superiority of Jesus' judgment. For one, Jesus' judgment is perfect. Here's another familiar biblical picture, right? The winnowing time, the time at the end of the harvest when all the grain is gathered together on that wide, broad, uh, that threshing floor, that dirt that's been packed hard through decades and centuries of use, and all the grain is poured out and it's stomped and it's beaten and and it's cracked open to separate the wheat, the kernel, from the husk and the chaff. And then the the thresher comes along, the winnower comes along with this winnowing fork and he begins to toss the grain into the autumn winds and and gravity and air current do all the rest of the work. It's automatically separated and all the chaff blows away, sometimes into places where the children could gather it up and use it as kindling to start the fire. When all the grain is gathered together and the people rejoice in a bountiful harvest. And John is saying that Jesus' judgment is like that. What is Jesus doing in his church? What is he doing in the world by the preaching of his gospel and by sending his word forth? He is tossing, he is tossing, he is tossing humanity into the wind. And they're being revealed for what they are and they're being separated based on the spiritual weight that is in them based on their response to or their rejection of the gospel message. Jesus is sifting humanity into wheat and chaff, and he always sifts perfectly. Doesn't it often happen that those who are with us in church very often for a considerable amount of time, those that we look at and say, well, obviously they are wheat. Obviously they are a true brother or sister in Christ, and then we find... Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's, maybe it's sin. Maybe it's something that grabs their heart, some sort of latent unbelief that nobody knew they were dealing with. The wind just sort of blows them away, and we're surprised. Them? I, I, no, I, I thought they were a part of us, and John says if they've gone out, they were never a part of you. And we're surprised when that happens. In our judgment, in our discernment, we would have said, no, no, this... This is the grain, and the Lord is saying, No, they're chaff. And we're even more surprised when it happens the other way. Pleasantly surprised, certainly, but surprised nonetheless, there are those people that we have written off. And, and quite frankly, we stop praying for them. We stop hoping for them. We, we stop evangelizing them. And then you hear the news that they have embraced Christ, they've become a believer. What a wonderful thing, but. But you thought they were out of reach, and those are just the ones that we know about. Those surprising believers and those false brothers, those are just the ones that we see, and it makes you realize that if we were the ones who had to decide between wheat and chaff, we wouldn't have any idea where to start. We can hardly discern our own hearts most of the time. Isn't that the way that it happened with the disciples? They're gathered together in the upper room, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. What did they say? About time. I knew there was something strange with that Judas all along. I can't believe we gave him the money bag all this time. I've been, I just told Philip the other day, man, that guy is a bad seed. Is that how they reacted? Or were they dumbfounded? Did they look around the room and around the table and betray you? Who? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And we realize, thank God, He hasn't committed judgment into our hands. If we were the ones who made the choice between wheat and chaff, either there would be no mercy or there would be no judgment. Either everyone would get a pass or no one would be safe. But Jesus' judgment is perfect. He always knows those who are His. And He saves them and He says not a single one of them shall be lost. And Jesus' judgment is perfect. Jesus' judgment is also final. You notice what it says there. He will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Folks, this does not leave us with the option of a mulligan. There is no do-over in terms of our eternal destiny. Those who have embraced Christ by faith in this life will be gathered to him, and those who have not will be punished in eternal fire. There is no annihilation. There is no ceasing to exist. The fires of hell are conscious and constant eternal torment. And as Abraham told the rich man in the parable, between heaven and hell, there is a great chasm fixed so that none can travel between the two. You see, Jesus' judgment is perfect, and it is absolutely final. Perhaps most importantly, Jesus' judgment is his. It's his judgment. It belongs to him by rights. John was a preacher of judgment and a preacher of damnation, but notice the way he preached about judgment back in verse 9. And notice how passive it is. John preaches about judgment as a spectator. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Who laid it? Not me. But it's laid. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down, and it is thrown into the fire, and it's also passive, and he's speaking of judgment as a spectator. Yes, he's an ambassador of Christ's court, God making his appeal through John, be reconciled to God, but he's not proclaiming judgment as the one who will have to put on the robe and handle the gavel and render a decision. But when he speaks of Christ and his judgment, notice how different it is. Verse 17 is active. Verse 17 is decisive. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn. We need to make that explicit. Jesus will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So don't believe that quasi-Christian notion that says, well, heaven is where God reigns and hell is where Satan is in charge. Don't believe for a moment that disgusting notion that says that in the metaphysical realm there are two equal and opposing forces. There is one good and there is one bad, and throughout eternity they are battling out together to see who will come out on top. There is one Lord, one Judge, one Sovereign over all existence, all creation. It all belongs to Him, and that means that hell does not belong to Satan. Hell belongs to Jesus. His judgment is His. Didn't He say that the Father has committed all authority in heaven and in earth and under the earth to the Son? Doesn't He say in John chapter 5, the Father judges no one, But he's given all judgment to the Son. And it is a fearful thing to think about the way that many people reject Jesus as they were simply choosing their favorite flavor of ice cream. The one sovereign judge over all creation. And they simply turn. I'm I'm not interested in that. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone and that's the response? Not, I've examined it, and, and I want nothing to do with it. Not, I've rejected it. I don't have time for that. I don't want to hear that. What does that have to do with me? What do I care? And it's so flippant. And all the people are standing there, listening to John, and they're wondering if, oh, perhaps he might be the Christ. And he says, no, it's not me. There's a world of difference between me and Christ. He says, I'm just somebody pleading with, Whoever will listen. And if a crowd comes out, that's great. And I'm glad to speak to you, but there is one who is coming that one day will gather all of humanity to himself and he will look every man and woman and child who has ever lived right in the eye and he will know them and he will know their sin better than they ever dreamed of knowing themselves. And at that time, the Lord will say one of two things. He will either say, well done, my good And faithful servant, or he will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. You see, John never forgot what was most important in ministry. His whole ministry was about pointing to Jesus so that before that day comes, you might see him, and you might know him, and you might take him as yours, so that you would be renewed by his Spirit and prepared to see him on the day of his judgment. Won't you please pray with me? O oh, gracious, righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for this, your word given to us, and we pray that you would quicken and soften our hearts, that we should hear it, and not leave from this place, having believed more strongly and firmly in Jesus Christ. Oh, work by your spirit in the hearts of your elect. Even while you do that sifting work of of separating the wheat from the chaff, oh Lord, your judgment is true and righteous and good. We long for that day when wickedness will be expelled and judged perfectly. We thank you that Christ Jesus has taken the judgment of all of your people the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. It's been laid on him so that we can be received and cleansed and refined as yours. Oh, gracious Lord, continue this work. Keep us by your spirit and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.